0: Please bow your heads one more time with me as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, your word is sweeter than honey to our souls and is more valuable than silver. It is deeper than the deepest sea, and you have given it to us for our conviction, for our encouragement, for our comfort, for our salvation, and we confess that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. So speak now, we pray, to us. Speak your word. Your servants are listening. Exalt Jesus Christ, we pray among us, for his sake. Amen. White and black... Rich and poor, male and female. These are the categories on the continuum of what we now call intersectionality. Intersectionality is the study of intersections. Not traffic intersections, but the interconnected nature, the intersection of ethnicity, class, and sex regarded as creating this overlapping interdependent system of discrimination or advantage, both for individuals and for groups. In the modern West, we think of these systems and the recognition of their effects as pretty new We congratulate ourselves for recognizing them. And in some ways, they are new. The global economy, the internet, social media, all make us hyper-aware that different people from different places and different cultures or different people inside the same culture experience the world and its social matrix in very different ways depending on where they are related or located in it. So we might be surprised to discover or maybe just remember that real social problems like ethnic resentments, religious and ethnic discriminations, identity politics, nationalism, tribalism were all basic to the reality of Jesus' day. Jesus knows we need to be saved from these kinds of sins too, sins of lovelessness for people who are different than us. So how did Jesus handle it when he encountered someone so radically different from himself? Well, we see an example of it this morning in John 4, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John 4, when he meets the woman at the well, who immediately wonders what in the world a Jewish man like him could possibly want with a Samaritan woman like herself. But this encounter soon spills over into an encounter with most of the people from her hometown who, by the end of this chapter, are agreeing together as Samaritans that Jesus, a Jew, is the Savior of the world. So how does a whole Samaritan town, beginning with a pretty feisty woman, begin to confess Jesus, a Jew, as Savior of the world in the space of just a couple of days. And how do we ourselves go from being calloused in our cynicism to tender-hearted in our faith in Jesus when there's so much dirty water under the bridge? Well, John 4 gives us a very good start with six lines of evidence, six lines of evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is giving this Samaritan woman and the rest of her town and his own disciples six lines of evidence that he is the Savior of the world. And I hope by the end of our time together, you'll not just agree that these evidences are true. I hope you will trust with us that Jesus really is the Savior of the world, even your Savior. I want to warn you. The first two evidences are going to be the longest, so don't get discouraged. (laughs) First two evidences are the longest. We'll start. The text is going to be John 4, 1 through 42. We'll read through it kind of piecemeal since it's so long, and we'll start with verses 1 through 15. John 4, 1 through 15. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, God, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So first line of evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He gives God's spirit. He gives God's spirit. Verses 1 through 15. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had eclipsed John the Baptist in the public eye, they, as leaders of the Jews and as moral guardians... And doctrinal guardians of the community, they feel threatened. And Jesus knows that when Pharisees feel threatened, they attack. So Jesus is basically forced out of Judea by the fear of the Pharisees, and he returns to the safe obscurity of rural Galilee, where he had turned water into wine, remember? It's about a two or three day walk up north. But the main road from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north ran straight through Samaria. So after a long first leg of the trip, he gets a two-bit Samaritan town called Sychar near the field Jacob gave to Joseph's son. Jacob's spring or well was there. That's where Jesus sits, worn out from walking. And it's the sixth hour. It's about noon. So the heat is taking it out of Jesus' humanity. He needs to hydrate so does a certain Samaritan woman at the same time of day, but not only in the way that she assumes. So Jesus starts this water conversation with her in verse 7 by asking the Samaritan woman to draw some water for him to drink from Jacob's well. Now Samaritans were the offspring of interracial marriages between ancient ethnic Jews who were left in Israel during the exile in 722 B.C., and ethnic Assyrians resettled there by the Assyrian government. So the Assyrians left all the people they thought were not worth their time. They took all the really high-class skilled laborers into the exile, into Assyria. They left the low-class people to tend the land, and they resettled that northern kingdom, Israel, with a bunch of Assyrians. And those Assyrians were the ones who the remaining Jews intermarried with. And these were the Samaritans. These were their offspring. So Jews from pure Jewish stock thought of Samaritans as religious and ethnic half-breeds who had compromised their national and religious identity by intermarrying with non-Jews. And for Jews, Samaritans personified then an ethnic, religious, ritual, and even an ethical problem. They embodied infidelity to Jews. They were a walking testimony to the fact that their own people still had not learned their lesson from the exile. Hey, keep yourself pure. You're still intermarrying. You're the embodiment of the problem that got us sent into exile to begin with, that got our land taken away from us. And so here, Jesus, a fully Jewish man, starts this conversation with this Samaritan woman by, of all things, requesting a drink from her, even to drink after her. I mean, it's not like he had his Yeti mug. He would have had the drink after her, which any Jew would have considered compromising to say the least. Jesus says, give me a drink. Now, to our kind of polite 21st century ears, that might sound abrupt. It might sound a little discourteous. I mean, the parents in the room would have been like, Jesus, you should have said, please. but it's almost as if he's so familiar with her that he doesn't need the formalities. He's tired, he's thirsty, he's fully human, and he talks to her with zero sense of awkwardness, zero sense of self-consciousness about anything that would possibly come between them. Hey, give me a drink. Like he's talking to his best friend. Like he's talking to another Jew. When in fact, this would be like a white man asking a black woman for a sip from her mug in Jim Crow, Georgia. That's what this is like. In verse 8, John clarifies that Jesus probably would have asked his disciples to draw the water, but they went to town to buy lunch. Otherwise, this conversation never happens. Verses 9 to 10, unable to hide her shock, she just blurts out her surprise, which borders on cynicism, and understandably so in the culture. She can tell he's all Jew just by looking at him. (laughs) I mean, she doesn't have to... Ask who she is, who he is or where he's from. Like Jesus looks Jewish. I mean, she could tell you you ain't from around here. You don't look like me. You don't talk like me. And in the ethnically charged culture, her tone is probably not Victorian. I mean, she's probably not taking his request as a compliment, at least not yet. It's not difficult to hear some sass out of this Samaritan woman. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I mean, the way she puts it makes you wonder if she had her hand on her hip and her eyebrows raised. You're kind of like, mm. You've got to be kidding me. This doesn't happen. Not around here. A full-blooded Jew, a man on her Samaritan turf, asking her from a drink from their fountain? Uh-uh. I'm calling you out where do you get off your kind look down on my kind I mean what are you even doing here and now that you're tired and thirsty I'm supposed to just wait on you because you ask? you didn't even say please when Jews never have anything to do with Samaritans I mean who are you man who do you think where do you think you are If it's not sarcasm, then at least she relishes the irony. Well, 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 isn't this a sight? A tired Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. Whatever the case, there's no way to read it just kind of flat. I mean, this is not an academic question. How is it that you, being a Jew, I mean, it's not like that. It's like, what? What is going on here? I mean, she's got some nerve, and she thinks Jesus must have some nerve to ask her for a drink. Really, you want a drink from me. How you figure. But even though Jesus is tired, he's exhausted actually, he is worn out in his humanity, he's not put off by this question even in the least. He goes without water for now. She doesn't get it for him <laughs> immediately. And he deals patiently with this woman, both with her question and probably with her attitude. In fact, he spars with her. He starts to play her game a little bit. Trades verbal volleys with her. She just sent a blistering groundstroke across the cultural net, and now Jesus puts the ball right back in her court. Oh, you want to play? I'll play. I'm tired, but I'll play. Let's do it. She had said, if you knew who I were, you would not be asking me for a drink. That was the implication. And Jesus replies, if you knew who I were, then you would be asking me for a drink. The question is not, how can I ask you for a drink? The question is, how can you not ask me for a drink? You see, he listened to what she said. And he responded to her in kind. He challenged her. If you knew the gift of God, which is way better than the gift of this well that Jacob gave you. When you look in in that paragraph, how often the word gift or gave or give is repeated. He's playing on that word. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. If anyone said the wrong thing here, it was not Jesus. It was her. I'm not the one that misspoke. You're the one that misspoke, and you didn't even know it. In verse 11 to 12, though, the woman misunderstands. Just like Nicodemus, she takes Jesus literally. She interprets living water as an underground spring, bubbling waters, but without a bucket and a rope, she doubts Jesus can deliver on his promise. Uh, you don't have anything to draw with. Where are you going to get water? So she still thinks she's the smart one. She's still being kind of sassy with him. <laughs> and yet here again we run into this pregnant preposition from where? Where? From where? Where are you going to get that water from? Just like Nathaniel asked, from where do you know me? Just like the waiter at the wedding wondered, from where did this wine come? Just like Nicodemus wonders, from where does the wind come? So here, from where will you get this living water? The first three chapters, from where, from where, from where, from where? That's the question, isn't it? From where? That's what you're supposed to ask about Jesus. Where are you from? Where did you come from? Where are you getting these things that you're talking about? So here, from where will you get this living water? And as one theologian pointed out, she's looking in the wrong direction. She thinks he's going to get it from underground. And he says, no, no, no. Don't look down. You've got to look up for this kind of water. But in verse 12, it seems to be dawning on her that Jesus might just be more than meets the eye. She says, Surely you're not greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself with his sons and even his livestock. She knows the history of this well, and it means something to her. Jacob gave it to us, he lived off it, so did the patriarchs, so did all the forefathers who stayed in the land through the exile. It was good enough for them, got them through, and it's good enough for this Samaritan woman too. She likes it. She's proud. She's proud to be living off this well, and she'll have words with anybody who thinks differently. In fact, she challenges Jesus here as if to say, who do you think you are? Jacob gave us this well, and it's been producing here for centuries. And now you come and talk like you got a better spring than he gave us. You're not even from here. How do you even know? I know where to get water. This is my town. This is our well. How dare you tell me I don't know where to get water? You're going to come in here and tell me my business? You must be something. But surely you're not Jacob. Surely you're not greater than Jacob, our father, who gave us this well that's been producing all this time. Now she's getting closer to the point that Jesus wants to make about himself and the water he gives. Jesus is, in fact, greater than Jacob because God gave Jesus the spirit without measure. And Jesus gives the spirit like water to everybody who trusts him. And that spirit wells up in the human heart like a spring sustaining eternal life in relationship with God through Christ. This is real life. Not just life in the human flesh, but life in the sense of being alive to God, being alive to his spirit, being alive to his word, to heaven, to eternity. This is new life, the new birth Jesus spoke of with Nicodemus. It's a new aliveness to God. And to his priorities, to his holiness, to his righteousness, to his logic, to the logic of Jesus, and to the spiritual satisfaction and the pleasures of heaven that are at God's right hand forever in Christ. This is real life. This is real water. This is water that sinks down to your soul. And this is a well that once it wells up inside you, your soul is never going to need another source of satisfaction. Satisfaction. It's a self-sustaining spring of life that bubbles up to quench the thirst of the soul and it shoots out all the way to life eternal. A whole new quality and duration of life. And the implication is, Jacob never gave you that, did he? It's a good well. The problem is, it's just a well. It's just water. And suddenly the woman is sold and the tables have turned. Jesus opened the conversation by saying, give me a drink. And now she's the one asking him, give me this water. (laughs) You see, Jesus modeled for her the response that he wanted from her. Give me a drink. And now she's saying to him, "Uh, you give me a drink. The water you are talking about sounds a lot better than the water I've got. But she is still thinking only on the physical plane. Give me this water in order that I might not thirst or come here to draw water. She's still thinking of water water, H2O. As if Jesus is offering her some fountain of youth, something to make her life easier, maybe permanent in this world. She is of the earth and so she is speaking of the earth. But Jesus is from heaven, and he is speaking from heaven. That's why they're talking past each other. So Jesus is going to clarify it for her in the next paragraph, verses 16 to 26. But for now, we know what Jesus means, right? Jesus is the one who satisfies our souls with his spirit like water. And this had been... What God wanted to do for Israel. Yet Israel was always looking to its own schemes in the world to create their own satisfaction. My people, he says in Jeremiah 2.13, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And have hewed out, have dug out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. You've dug out reservoirs for yourself and your own pleasures and idols. And all the water of life that you try to pour in there just seeps right out. Those are leaky buckets. And so God promised in Isaiah 44:3, I will pour water on the thirsty land streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. And he invited them as he invites us still today in Christ. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come and get it. Come get real water for your soul that will satisfy you in a way that nothing and no one in this world can. You know why you keep going to that lust? You know why you keep getting angry over that task that you can't do or that person that disappoints you. You know why you get despairing and depressed and despondent? It's because you're looking and drinking from the wrong well. There's nothing in this life that can satisfy you like this. So you're drinking from that well of your own sin, or just of worldliness. And it's either dirty water or it's not the right kind. It doesn't go down to your soul. Whether it's your marriage or your children, whether it's an entertainment or a pleasure, whether it's your ambition at work or what you're trying to get for yourself out of work, it's the wrong kind of water that's not going to go down into your soul. It's not going to satisfy you. You're looking for too much from the world. You need a different kind of water. You need the water of the Spirit of God. And Jesus is the one who distributes that. These are the waters, the waters of God's Spirit that Jesus is offering the woman at the well, and he's offering them to you today. If you turn from digging your own wells your own reservoirs to trust in Jesus, to satisfy your soul, to forgive your sins. Sinner, I wonder what well have you been relying on lately? It could be the retail well of consumer delights, the seductive well of illicit sex. Maybe it's the professional well of vocational success and achievement, of reputation, Maybe it's a domestic well of marriage, family, private entertainments. Maybe it's just the hope or expectation of retirement. Maybe it's a chemical well full of alcohol and drugs. Or maybe it's just a reflecting pool of narcissism, self-gratification, self-worship, self-delight. Every one of those wells produces either a dirty or a syrupy kind of water that leaves your heart with a spiritual equivalent of cotton mouth. Jesus is the one who saves us from that futility and the thirst of the soul. God created us, body and soul, to love and enjoy and serve him forever. We were meant to find our highest pleasures and our most lasting satisfactions in communing with him, Worshipping Him, serving Him, loving Him, learning from Him, praying to Him, listening to Him in Scripture. Our souls were created to live on the clean water of God's Spirit. Enlivening us to see Him for who He really is in all His glory and His grace. And to look elsewhere for the soul's satisfaction is idolatry, sin, and rebellion against God's love and against His design for us to be dependent on Him. And it is to dehydrate yourself. You are dehydrating your soul. I like all sorts of beverages that aren't good for me. I love carbonated beverages. I love, I mean, I'm still a kid. I like chocolate milk. I think if I could get away with it, probably if I weren't married, I would just drink chocolate milk a lot. That's not good for me. I would never drink water. I forget to drink physical water. I'm dehydrating myself. But it's because I have a taste addiction to something else that I just like the taste of it. But what's good for me is water. And you know where this is going. There is a taste that you crave in worldliness, in your entertainments, in your pleasures, in your vocation, in your reputation, in whatever it is about this world. Maybe it's even trying to get too much out of your spouse or your children. And you look to that thing and you like how that thing makes you feel. You like how it tastes. You like that relationship. And then you realize, man, my soul still isn't satisfied with that. You're dehydrating yourself. You have to drink water, Christian. You got to drink water. You need the Spirit of God making sense of the Word of God for your soul. To delight in God, deep must call to deep. Second, Jesus proves second line of evidence that He is the Savior of the world is that He authorizes God's worship in verses sixteen to twenty-six. Verses sixteen to twenty-six in chapter four. Jesus starts to change his tack. You see how the the feel. The subject matter of the conversation changes. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. (laughs) Mic drop. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. For the hour is coming and now and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, "I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things." And Jesus said to her, "I, who speak to you, am He." Jesus authorizes God's worship. Since the woman at the well doesn't understand who she's dealing with from the water metaphor, Jesus begins a second conversation with her. She assumed she knew who he was just by looking at him. He's just a run-of-the-mill Jew. She also assumed that because of who he is, he would not be interested in who she is. He then insisted that if she really knew him, she'd be asking him for living water, the Spirit of God. She still doesn't get it. So now he shows her who he is by proving that he knows who she is. You see? Verses 16 and 18, call your husband here. Ah, I don't have a husband. Right, right, right. Uh, you've had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. This is what you told me. That's what you're really saying. You see what Jesus is doing? She couldn't see who he is, so he shows who he is by his knowledge of who she is without him telling her or without her telling him. And finally, in verse 19, she sees Jesus as something other than a racist Jew. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now Jesus has her attention. And while she has his attention, she might as well try to stump him by asking about the elephant in the room. What's right about where to worship? Who's right? Us, the Samaritans, or you, the Jews? The Samaritans only believed in Genesis through Deuteronomy. So they thought they should worship on Mount Gerizim in the north, which is where the blessings of the covenant were proclaimed when they first entered the promised land in Deuteronomy 27. I mean, that's pretty good logic, right? Like, hey, here we go. Blessings from Mount Gerizim. Why don't we worship there? Place of blessing. Place where blessing is conferred to the nation. But the Jews believed in all of Genesis through Malachi, and God had chosen Jerusalem as the place for the temple under David and Solomon. So for the woman at the well, if Jesus is worth his salt as a prophet... He'll be able to solve that worship war in a way that brings Jews and Samaritans together. So she says, okay, okay. all right, prophet, solve this one. Solve the whole enchilada. I'm just going to give you the biggie. And if you can do it, i believe you. And in verse 21, Jesus tells her that the geography of worship is about to be totally transformed in the sense that it won't be centralized on either of the two mountains in Israel, whether Gerizim and Samaria or Jerusalem and Judea, because that's where the temple was. In verse 22, though, he acknowledges the importance of the debate as it was. Samaritans worship a God they don't know. What's he mean by that? You worship what you don't know. That's a big statement in just a few words. What does he mean? You worship what you don't know. I mean, that doesn't sound very seeker-sensitive, does it? You worship what you don't He's accusing her of total ignorance of the God she's worshiping, her whole people. You worship what you don't know, not because they were worshiping the wrong God, but because they were trying to worship the right God in the wrong way, in the wrong place. God did not choose Mount Gerizim, contrary to Samaritan interpretation. God had said in Deuteronomy 12 that when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then, then, after the conquest, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, eventually Jerusalem, the temple. So notice, Jesus says, the where and therefore the way of Samaritan worship contributed to the ignorance of the God they thought they were worshiping. You see? They were worshiping the true God in a false way, in a way that he had not commanded. And therefore, that misinformed way of worship circled back to misinform them about the very God they were worshiping. They worshiped the true God in an ignorant way and therefore became ignorant about the very God they worshiped. You see, the way you worship matters. To your understanding of the God you think You're worshiping. That's the second commandment. So not only does our idea of God shape the way we worship him, that's true. But it's also true that the way we worship him, obediently or disobediently, also circles back to shape or distort our idea of the God we worship. So what we do is based on our understanding of God. But what we do also shapes our understanding of God. How we do what we do shapes your understanding of the God you worship. So the worship war between the Jews and Samaritans mattered to Jesus because of that. He saw consequences for the Samaritans. And so today, the way we worship goes to influence whether we know God or whether we remain ignorant of him in some way. And his conversation with the Samaritan woman shows that Jesus cared about people who are poorly taught in the matter of how they worship. He cared to correct her. By contrast, for the Judeans, we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the stream of revelation and knowledge about salvation comes through the Jewish people through the temple worship that happened in Jerusalem precisely because it was commanded by God. That's where God had chosen to be worshipped. What's more, we worship the God we know, and we know the God we worship because we know and obey the right way to worship contrary to the worship that happened at Mount Gerizim. God cares. Jesus cares about the how of worship still. But the how and where of worship is about the change in Jesus' day because in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is not contrasting sincere with him hypocritical worship. or internal individual worship with public institutional corporate worship. That's not the distinction either. To worship in spirit and in truth is one composite quality. According to the new spirit of regeneration and eternal life given by the Holy Spirit, according to the truth of Jesus as Messiah and the one who gives the spirit. In other words, he's contrasting worship apart from Christ, outside Christ, not commanded by Christ, with worship in Christ, by Christ, approved by Christ. In short, Jesus. Jesus is the geography of worship. He is the where of worship. If you're not worshiping God, In Christ, you're not worshipping God as he wants to be worshipped, and your understanding of the God you worship is totally ignorant and off because he is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will become the new and only temple where God meets man, just as Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, speaking of the temple of his body. It was just two chapters ago. So this truth, Jesus as the geography, the holy place and space of worship becomes another line of evidence. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Because he alone saves us from worshiping God, relating to God in ignorance, and in so doing, he saves our worship from making us ignorant of God. Jesus doesn't just solve the worship war then. He mediates and hosts all true worship, period. To worship in spirit and truth then is to worship from a regenerated heart that's filled with the person of the Holy Spirit and to worship according to the truth of God as we find it In the person and work of Jesus alone. Based on his righteousness, his blood, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his priesthood alone. And you're delighting in that and all of that worship from a new heart that Jesus gave you to love the things he loves. To love him for who he presents himself to be in scripture. And not for who you used to think he was in your flesh. Therefore... Therefore, the most spiritual worship is the worship that most clearly magnifies and expounds Jesus in his fully divine personhood. And in all of his all-sufficiency as our Redeemer, in his righteous life, in his sacrificial death, for the forgiveness of our sins, in his resurrection from the dead for our justification. The most spiritual worship is a worship that expounds and honors Jesus best. As the one who gives the spirit and as the one who teaches the truth and embodies the truth of God. That's the most spiritual worship you can have. I don't care how much you close your eyes or hold your hands out or hold your hands up or whatever's going on. Or if somebody... Someone's prophesying about something. Look, if Jesus is not being magnified, if Jesus is not being expounded, and if your heart is not enthralled with the truth and grace of Jesus, that's another spirit at work. Because Jesus said the Spirit will glorify me John sixteen, fourteen. All this is true because God is spirit, which is implicitly a contrast with flesh. So Jesus is contrasting worship according to finite sinful human assumptions and preferences, the flesh, with worship according to the new spirit, the Holy Spirit, the living water that Jesus is about to pour out on his people for regeneration, obedience from a new heart. God is spirit, must be worshipped from the corresponding spirit of a new heart. You can't worship Jesus in your flesh. You can't worship God in your flesh. You need the spirit of God welling up in you to produce genuine worship to God as spirit. And that happens for us regardless of our nationality, ethnicity, geography, culture, or socioeconomic status, or political identity. What matters most to God is the in-Christness of your worship which is the only kind of worship the Holy Spirit enables and produces. And this spirit of the living water, that the spirit is the living water that Jesus will give us that bubbles up to eternal life in our hearts. The living water of verses 7 to 15 produces the living worship of verses 16 to 26. The living water of verses 7 to 15 produces the living worship of Of verses 16 to 26. What's more, the living water, the spirit, is the only one who can produce living worship of the Father. You can't manufacture this. This is the spirit that transcends all racism, all intersectionality, all identity politics, all nationalism all tribalism, and it unites us to worship the same Father and the same Spirit and the same truth of Jesus. And that is why in Christ there is neither black nor white, Asian or Latino, rich nor poor, slave nor free, male or female, because there is only one Spirit and there is only one Christ who gives him. So the Spirit does not obliterate our ethnicity, or our sex, but he does subordinate our ethnicity and sex to the truth of Jesus, to the worship of Jesus, to the service of Jesus. Now, by this time in the conversation of verse 25, the woman is wondering all the more who exactly she's dealing with. I mean, this is probably the best sermon she's ever heard. <laughs> so, she floats the Messiah word, maybe to see if Jesus will own it for himself. When Messiah comes, who is called the Christ, he will teach us all things and sure enough, Jesus picks it up in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. <laughs> now you got it. Now you're asking the right question. And notice, the first time Jesus makes an I am statement in the whole gospel is right here. And look who it's to. <laughs> A Samaritan woman. Maybe the lowest person on the totem pole we've met yet in the gospel. Third. Third. Jesus is the Savior of the world, third line of evidence. He embodies God's nature, much shorter. Verses 27 to 30. Just then, after he had said to the woman, I who speak to you am he, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, left her water jar, and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples come back with lunch, and they see Jesus talking with a the woman. They can hardly believe it. They apparently wanted to ask him what he wanted with her or why he was talking with her, but no one had the guts to speak up. It may have been that silent, judgmental attitude thinly veiled that led the woman to go back to town. Whatever the case, when she leaves Jesus and the disciples, she also leaves her water jar there as well. It's not that she misunderstood again. It's that Jesus had so arrested her attention that she forgot why she went to the well in the first place because she got a different kind of water. It's her old way of thinking that she left behind in those jars, her old way of thinking about what she really needed and how she could get it, her old priorities, her old loyalties. She had discovered not just a different well, but a different spring. So when the woman gets back to town, what she testifies to is the divinity of Jesus. Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. She's testifying to the proof Jesus gave her that he is the Messiah he claims to be. And now she wants them to come and see for themselves. But again, notice the progression. The father is seeking worshipers in verse 23. Jesus himself is seeking this woman to become such a worshiper. That's the implicit answer to the disciples' question in verse 27. What are you seeking? The last time the word seeking was used, the father was seeking worshippers. That's what he's doing. He's seeking her as a worshiper. And now the woman goes seeking still other worshippers. That church is how it works. Jesus convinces us that he is God incarnate, the Savior of the world, and we go invite others to meet him for themselves in Scripture and in prayer. That is the pattern. Come and see. Come and see. Come see for yourself. Come meet him. It's what Jesus said to his first disciples when they asked where he was staying. Come and see. Same thing Philip said to Nathanael. Come and see. And in verse 30, the townspeople accept her invitation. They come out of the city to meet Jesus. So the movement of the text is that living water produces living worship. And living worship, in turn, produces living witness. Fourth line of evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world, he accomplishes God's will. In verses 31 to 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We brought you back lunch. It's been a long journey. I know you're tired. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white with, for harvest. So, as the townspeople are on their way to meet Jesus, the disciples are back at the well with lunch, urging Jesus to eat a little something. But now, just like he used water as a metaphor for the woman, or with the woman for the spirit, so he used food as a metaphor with the disciples. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And just like the woman took him literally about the living water, so the disciples wonder if someone slipped him a loaf of bread while they were gone. I mean, I don't know what it was like to be Jesus, but sometimes you just wonder if he was just kind of rolling his eyes at people. <laughs> like, no! <laughs> well, <you're laughs> Think, man! I'm not talking about literal bread! Jesus' food is to do the will of the one who sent him and to accomplish his work. What's he mean by that? Well, what's he been doing while they were gone? He was doing evangelism with the woman at the well. So doing his father's will is a reference to his evangelism with her, at least most immediately, which is a way of seeking worshipers for the father. But that's just the most immediate example. All through Jesus' earthly life, what fed and energized him what gave him spiritual caloric intake, what he found satisfying and nourishing and filling to his human soul was to serve God's saving purposes in the lives of other people. That fed him. It did not deplete him. And eventually that work found its culmination and climax in his death on the cross where he said the same word, that he uses here for accomplished, it is finished. Christ is the one who accomplishes God's saving mission to humanity, and he accomplishes that mission not as a drudgery, but as its own reward. Teaching the misguided, healing the sick, convincing the skeptics, casting out demons, being patient with a sassy-mouthed woman. Confronting the self righteous, rebuking the wicked, even his suffering on the cross. He did it all for the joy that was set before him. Jesus lived on ministry like you and I live on food, he's just looking for his next meal. There was a satisfaction to it for him, a fullness in it, even a restfulness amid the work. And in the context of his statement here, it makes it all the more compelling. He came to that well, utterly worn out by this journey, physically drained, and he never got his drink of water. She never drew for herself, much less for him, and she leaves the jars empty to go tell the townspeople that her heart was full of a better kind of water. The work Jesus did was restful to his heart, even when his humanity was drained. How could he feel like that? Because God gave him the spirit without measure to energize his service. He had a well of water that was springing up in him to eternal life no matter how tired he was from the journey. And this is another line of evidence in John's gospel that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. And if you are a Christian, you have this same Spirit of Christ in you, the Spirit that finds Christian work invigorating, restful, satisfying, life-giving, even when your body is, is drained. Fifth line of evidence, he inaugurates God's harvest. This is the fifth line of evidence that he is, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Verses 35 to 38. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and the other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So verse 35 to 38, Jesus pivots from talking about his own work to inaugurating the great harvest of souls that the apostles and the rest of the church will steward. From the fruit of his conversation with the woman at the well and from the fruit of her conversation with the rest of her city, the harvest is here. The fields are ready to reap. When Jesus says, lift up your eyes, a number of theologians, I think, rightly point out that he means it finally, literally. And he's pointing to all the people coming out to meet him from the city of Sychar after the woman witnessed to him. Look. Look who's coming. Look what the fields are full of. Samaritans coming to me. and coming to you. But the image of sowing and reaping comes from gospel promises in the Old Testament like Amos 9 where the plowman overtakes the reaper. Think about that image. The plowman overtakes the reaper. You're plowing because you're getting ready to plant. But when you're out in the field you're plowing and all of a sudden you're like, hey reaper! Get out of my way! What? What is this image? It's the idea that the harvest is going to be so abundant that the plowman going out to plant the seed is going to run into the reaper who is still reaping last year's bumper crop. That's how great the harvest is going to be. These are the kinds of things Jesus means when he says... In verse 36 that the reaper is already earning his paycheck by gathering fruit for eternal life. Evangelism and disciple making such that the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Oddly enough at the very same time in the overlapping seasons of salvation. One sows another reaps at the same time. Yet Jesus puts an encouraging spin on it for his disciples. I'm sending you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. You have entered into their labor. The disciples are not the ones who have the sad job of sowing without ever getting, re- getting to reap. The disciples get the happy job of reaping where other people sowed and did not reap. That's apparently what's about to happen when the whole town of Sychar comes to meet Jesus. And it is what's going to happen after Jesus' resurrection from the dead at Pentecost in the whole book of Acts. It's what's still happening today all over the world. And it is what we pray to see happen here among us in Elgin. Sixth and final line of evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world, is that he teaches God's truth in verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. To get the full effect of that last paragraph, we have to contrast it with the end of chapter 2. There, while Jesus was still at the Passover in Jerusalem, the most religious city of the world, many cosmopolitan Jews believed in Jesus' name because they saw the signs that he did. They believed because they saw. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because for Jesus, seeing is not believing, at least not in a saving way. But here... Why do these rural, obscure, outcast Samaritans believe? Because of the woman's verbal testimony about Jesus' divine knowledge of her sordid past. And then, when they come to Jesus directly, instead of driving him away because they feel threatened by him and his popularity and knowledge, like the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 4, These Samaritans are so thrilled that they invite Jesus to stay with them, which he does. (laughs) I wonder what those couple days were like. And when he stays, even more Samaritans believe in him because they hear Jesus' teaching directly in verse 42. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, Samaritan woman, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know We have heard and we know. We have heard and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Why do they know that this is the Savior of the world? Not because they saw Him do miracles, it's not empirical. It's because they heard his teaching for themselves. They did not believe because they saw. They believed he is the savior of the world because they heard his teaching of God's truth. And it struck a chord. It resonated. And they believed. That, for Jesus, is real faith that really saves. And he will spend time with anybody who will believe because they heard even a Samaritan village. The irony is that of all the people that we have met so far in John's gospel, these despised Samaritans appear in the most honorable light of all of them. Whereas Jews in chapter 2 believe based on seeing and Jesus sets lightly to them, These Samaritans believe based on hearing and Jesus draws near to them. Sure, I'll stay. I'll stay with you. Whereas the Pharisees of verse 1 were threatened by Jesus, the Samaritans are thrilled with him. And whereas the Pharisees force Jesus out, the Samaritans invite him to stay and they are the ones who go down in history as recognizing Jesus for who he is, this one is truly the Savior of the world. So what about you, friend? Will you go down in history and in eternity as recognizing Jesus for the Savior he is? Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, give us this water. Let us drink of your Holy Spirit. Let us drink and drink to the full. Slake the thirst of our souls. May we lay down our other jars. where we have in vain tried to gather up water that will never drip down into our souls. May we see you for who you are. May we worship you according to your spirit and to your truth and according to the spirit that you have put in our hearts according to the truth of Jesus Christ and your word, your commands, how you Want to be worshiped. May we believe you. May we trust you. That you really are the Savior of the world. May we preach you as the Savior of the world. May we proclaim you. May we worship you, Lord Christ, as the Savior of the world. May others come to trust you as their Savior because of our testimony and because of your faithfulness to us, and because of your spirit put into our hearts by your grace. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.